I'm here to do a podcast this Monday morning on is Jesus a one-off or are we supposed to be made in his image like him because of him? Well, share if you care and like this post if you want others to notice that uh, you're taking time to listen to this or share it if you want others to hear it. Also, since the technology is new for me, feel free to let me know you can hear me okay or if there's anything that's not coming across good. Otherwise, I want to get into a great Bible study today that I think kind of summarizes what I've been trying to say over the last couple of Bible studies that talk about entire sanctification and spiritual growth and entire sanctification. The basic idea is Jesus died in our place, taking the wrath of God so that as he rose, we might live with him and like him. When we go to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, it says we were made in God's image. And as we sinned, or when we sinned, we lost that image. And in Christ, we get that image back. Now, let me just say this here right off, uh, right off the top at the beginning. I am not saying that we become God like Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, is God in the flesh. I am not saying that we become equal to God the Son. That is an error that other cults have taught, but that is not something that I am talking about today. What I am talking about is what happens in the nature of the believer when they are born again. In whose image are they born again? I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that when we are born again, we are born again into the image of Christ. So let's see who's uh, checking me out today. Let's make sure I'm coming through okay. Good morning, Walter. Anybody else want to give a shout out? I appreciate you taking time to join with me. I know Monday mornings are hard for a lot of you. It uh, starts the week off, you know, but uh, hopefully this will give you some Monday morning motivation and it just happens to work best with my schedule. Now let's think about this. When we were originally created in the Garden of Eden, were we made perfect or imperfect? All Christians should easily be able to answer that, that question. No matter what uh, background you come from in Christianity, we all should be able to answer that question that at creation, we were made perfect. Now, let me ask you another question. At creation, whose image were we made in? Now, most of us would say we're made in the image of God, right? That's an easy answer. But I would like to ask you to go a little bit deeper. We know that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So specifically, out of the Blessed Trinity, whose image were we made in? I believe we were made in the image of Jesus, in the image of Jesus. And so turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 1, and let's get into the scriptures. Glad to have you with me this morning. As you can see, I've highlighted my uh, online Bible here. It's so good, right? It's been highlighted multiple different times in different colors here. But it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now notice that Jesus, who we know is the Word, is the one whom God used the Father to make all things. So God the Father used God the Son to make everything. 
So Jesus literally is the creator of everything. Now let's go on and continue with this idea of whose image are we made in. It says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, when we go to the book of Genesis chapter 2, and we see in verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being who gave them the life that was their light that enabled them to become a living being or a living soul. We know from John 1 verses 1 through 5 that that was in fact the word. That was Jesus. Just taking a moment to check in on everybody here. Brandon, thanks for giving me some feedback. Roger, good morning. Glad to see you guys checking me out as we study in the word of God today. Is Jesus a one-off or is he meant to multiply himself upon the earth? Okay, now going back to the questions I was just asking. Whose image were we made in when we were first created in the garden? In the image of God the Son, right? That's whose image we were made in. Now, were we made perfect? Absolutely. So there shouldn't be any debate about what happened at creation, what was God's original intent, and what was our relationship to Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. We were made in the image of God, specifically Jesus. He breathed his life into us, and we were perfect. Now, sometimes people get it confused and say man was the perfect image of Jesus, and then woman is now a perfect image of man. So it it, it would mean that woman is not a perfect image of Jesus. She's a secondary creation only made after man. And that's not true. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 to see clearly that man and woman together are the perfect image of the triune God. Genesis chapter 1 talks about on the sixth day. Verse 27 says, so God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice the complex unity. God is a complex unity. Three persons sharing one divine nature. When he makes humanity, which is also the word Adam, when he makes Adam, humanity, mankind, he does so in complex unity, male and female. Now, if you go into some of the Jewish mysticism here and uh, some of the different beliefs that have come around uh, this idea, some believe that the original human being was a hermaphrodite. The Jews actually taught that Adam and Eve shared the same body, but had two different heads and two different minds. And then when Adam, uh, when this creature went to sleep, this first human being, that woman was taken literally separated from the man. And then they became two separate uh, persons, uh, two separate beings as being two separate persons. Now, of course, that's Jewish mysticism. We don't have to go there. But it's an interesting thought 
to how the union of marriage brings that back together of man and woman being one. Because remember, in the sexual union of marriage, there is the symbol of unity. And so I don't think we can draw from that, that Adam and Eve were a two-headed person in the garden. But it's been around for a very long time that humanity was made complex, male and female. Now, if you just take the story as it is, it seems like when we go into Genesis chapter 2, we are given the details of how woman was made. But Genesis 1 summarizes it by saying both of them, no matter if Adam came first, both of them were in the image of God as a, as a couple. And so if you only have man, you don't have the image of God. If you only have woman, you don't have the image of God. A little bit deeper than what we're going to get into today, but I wanted us to see clearly that woman is included in the image of God. Okay, so were we made perfect in the beginning? Absolutely, male and female. Whose image were we made in? God, specifically God the Son. So that was his original intention. What happened after we sinned? We lost the glory of God that exemplified the image of God and we became fallen in our sin. Now, at this point, some people begin to argue, how did the fallenness of Adam affect humanity as it went forward? Did man become totally depraved and wicked from birth? Or did man simply just lose the glory of God and would only become wicked by his own or her own sin? So it is uh, the damnation of Adam imputed as a governmental head to all of humanity or was only his curse imputed and then the actual damnation is only then imputed individually as people sin. Now, this is a difference that we could be here for a while, but for the sake of keeping this short, I will simply share what I believe. In Adam, we all sinned as our governmental head, and we not only share in the curse of losing the glory of God, but we have received a fallen nature from him. And my best place to show you that is in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to contrast what Adam did with what Jesus did. And so what we're going to see is that there's two Adams, in other words. There is the first Adam, named Adam, who fell and gave us the sinful nature. And then there is the second Adam, Jesus, who gave us the divine nature. So let us see here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, some might try to say it only is counted once they sin, this damnation comes. The curse can come from Adam, meaning no one is born glorious and perfect as they were in the garden. That is true. Everyone would agree with that. But no one is, is, is born fallen unless they personally sin. Now, I believe when it says because all sinned, I believe that is talking about all sinned in Adam. And we'll see that working out, I believe, in Paul's theology. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam, uh, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did 
Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So here we can't, uh, Paul is saying we can't technically call something a sin unless we have law and law wasn't given in its fullness to Adam. And so this idea that we don't become uh, truly damned unless we personally sin would not apply because sin wouldn't be known to the person unless they had a law to violate. So the one that had the law given to them in the very beginning was Adam. He violated it. And so in Adam, we all, we all sinned because he was our representative. And let me just continue on with that to get to the greater point that I'm trying to make in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. So now uh, Jesus, the second Adam in his gift, is going to be contrasted against the first Adam and his trespass, the sin, the curse, and the damnation that we receive. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift of God, uh, excuse me, and the uh, excuse me, much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many. Let me read that again. I'm so sorry. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many? So how is it we were made sinners in nature? We were made sinners in nature by Adam's sin. How are we made righteous in nature? By Jesus's sacrifice, by Jesus's sacrifice. Now, let me just show you this one more time that we were objects of God's wrath by birth because of Adam, okay? Now let's go to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Thank you for joining with me. It says, for, uh, it says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bear with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? So I just want to settle that point according to what I believe the scripture is teaching, that as surely as we were made objects of wrath in Adam, we are now made objects of righteousness in Christ. I think for this truly to work, if you believe in Christian perfectionism, if you believe in sharing in the divine nature of Christ, you must see both sides of the coin. If you ignore receiving Adam's nature, then it's going to be hard for you to use those scriptures to receive and to see you're receiving Christ's nature. Because as we were seeing in Romans chapter 5, both Adam's nature and Christ's nature are contrasted, and we now are the arbiter to which one we will continue in after hearing the gospel. Will we continue in Adam's damnable, cursed nature, separated from God as an object of wrath, or will we receive by grace through faith the nature of Christ? And so let me give you another example of this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the way we have to look at it is if Jesus did not become sin for us and die on the cross, we couldn't become righteous in him. Now, if 
the sin wasn't imputed to us by Adam, then why would Christ becoming sin work in imputing righteousness? It has to go both ways. So for those who want to say they believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ, which means Christ gives his righteousness to us, it is not a righteousness we earn. We do not make ourselves or remodel ourselves into the image of Christ. It is given to us at salvation. If you want to believe that, you also have to believe that you received sin as a nature in Adam from birth. Now, a quick side note, and some people get lost in this, and they feel it's contradicting to what I'm saying, but I don't believe it is. They say, well, then what happens to children or lost people groups who don't hear the gospel? Are they then doomed from the womb, like maybe Calvinists would say? I don't agree with that, because I believe actually the Bible makes concessions for these questions that we would have. For example, concerning children. Jesus, while he's walking the earth, says the kingdom of God belongs to children. So I hold to a doctrine that I don't believe is explicitly taught, but it's implicit in the scripture, and that's the age of accountability. That somehow God's mercy through Jesus Christ applies to all children before they begin to sin willfully against God, though they deserve damnation because of the sinful nature. God could rightly do that. He doesn't do that based on his justice. And then Romans chapter 1 and 2, talking about unreached people groups, says that there is somewhat of a chance of inclusivity in Christ, not outside of Christ, that if they have unreached people groups, rejected idolatry, if they have rejected ancestral worship, if they have rejected immoral living because of creation and their conscience, the light that they have can either defend them and give them an inheritance in the kingdom or condemn them. Now, some jump to Romans chapter 3 and say, all then are condemned. But I don't believe that's what Romans 2 is saying because it says in Romans 2 there at the end that on the day of judgment, according to Paul's gospel, their consciences will either defend them or accuse them. And so what Romans 3 is saying is that no one is justified under the law. So as long as they're not trying to find their own justice or their own righteousness in the law, unreached people groups can do what Paul said in Acts 17, and that is reach out to the God who created them in that time and place and find mercy. But remember, it will still be through Christ. That's another discussion, more controversial subjects. But I hope that now I've laid a good foundation for the scriptures I actually want to share. Somebody say that was just the introduction. Let me check in with you right now and to make sure that everybody is tracking with me. Okay, Brandon Dixon said it should be a completely normal and common thought that God's original intention was for humans to be clean, pure, holy, righteous. Amen. Uh, we have here Jim Barber uh, the Christian hillbilly saying, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Wonderful. And now we see Rogers saying, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of his son. Uh, bear the iniquity of his father. Boy, I just jumped away, brother. The moment you just put that uh, up there, someone put another text and I missed it. But let me touch on that that uh, I believe that's from Ezekiel, that he shall not bear the iniquity of his father. The son shall not bear the iniquity of his father. And I wish, um, man, there was a way. Can you, uh, Roger, can you just put that right back up there, please? 
Uh, I want to be able to see your reference so I can touch on that before we go forward. That's a scripture that people use to, de to deny original sin. I'll just tap on that scripture because I believe a lot of people use that to get away from how we could inherit Adam's guilt. But remember, I think Romans, which comes after the prophetic announcement of that, which I believe is in Ezekiel. Thank you. Ezekiel chapter uh, 18, verse 20. Remember, Romans comes after that. And so it's going to be how we, how we read this is uh, how we read one of these passages is going to determine how we read the other passage, right? So let's say we want to take Ezekiel first before we understand Romans, okay? Even though we have to believe that Paul would have understood Ezekiel while writing Romans, but some might say, well, that doesn't prove your point, Joe. Romans proves my point. Okay, so let's just see what Ezekiel 18.20 says. The one who sins is the one who will die. Now, let me ask you a question, Roger, and those who believe that this uh, takes away imputed guilt of Adam. Is the death here eternal condemnation or is the death here judgment under God, uh, by God, uh, for the nations? So is the judgment here referencing eternal salvation or national sin? I believe that's what it's, I believe it's talking about national sin. And that's what I believe Romans is talking about when he's talking about Jacob I love, Esau I hated. So now watch, if you like me, don't believe Romans is, Romans 9 is talking about individual salvation that literally Jacob goes to heaven because God predetermined him and Esau goes to hell because God predetermined him. You believe that's talking about nations. Then be consistent here is my call, gently, obviously in love, to be consistent and to not see it as personal salvation, but as national judgment. Okay, that's what I think. So the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Once again, does that have to do with salvation or does that have to do with judgment upon a nation and a people group? Keep going. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, why do, oh, I don't have the scripture up. Excuse me, let me put this up. I've been reading it, but let me put it up. Now, why do I think this is talking about national judgment? Because Ezekiel is righteous while judgment is upon the wicked. Jeremiah was righteous while judgment is upon the wicked. And what Jesus is saying here, because I believe he's the author of all scripture, is I believe Jesus is saying, I am not going to shoot down an entire people group just because of what their leaders do. I will, I will be merciful to the ones who are righteous even in the midst of my judgment. So take, for example, when national judgment came upon Egypt, everybody's children died in Egypt because of what Pharaoh and those wicked leaders had done. That's exactly what I believe Romans chapter 9's point is, is that God is raising up nations for his own glory. He's bearing with these objects of wrath, but it's not their individual salvation. Like, let's say you were a righteous Egyptian during that time, uh, and you were trying to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you didn't put the blood over your doorpost because you, 
didn't know that command, like let's say it didn't reach you, you're gonna lose your child because you're being judged with everybody else. You didn't have that way of escape. You would have been judged with everybody else, even though you were trying to do what was right at that time. Now, the point that I think Ezekiel is making is, Ezekiel and prophets like him will not be judged with the nation because of now what everybody else has done wrong. Like Daniel is blessed in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are blessed. So let's keep going. It says, but if uh, 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 Ezekiel 18 says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now it says, if a wicked person turns from all their sins that they've committed and keeps all the decrees and does what's right and just, that person will surely live. They will not die. So you will not die in this judgment. None of the offenses they committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done. They will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And then he says the same thing about the righteous. Now watch verse 25. Yet they say, watch this. Yet they say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you Israelites. Listen to the national thing he's trying to tell them. Is my way unjust? Is not your ways, is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sins, they will die for it because of the sins they they have committed, they will die. And then he repeats himself. So I believe he's talking to the nation and judgment. One more time, verse 29. Yet the Israelites will say, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? And then listen to verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Will you not die, people of Israel? For I take no, death, no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So once again... Ezekiel's people are under national judgment and they're going to suffer there if they don't repent. The nation has already been damned or condemned by God because of the national sins. And now he's saying to these individuals, you will not be held guilty for your parents' sins. You now will be held accountable to what you're going to do. You will live or die under this time of judgment based on what you do. Now, if you want to read that into soteriology and now say that there was a time we were once accountable for Adam's sin, and then now Ezekiel is saying that time has now left, I think you're missing the point of what Ezekiel is saying. Or if you're thinking that he is saying we've never been accountable for Adam's sins, then you're missing the point of Deuteronomy and the curses. What I think he is clearly saying is here, Deuteronomy taught the curses would come down to multiple generations. At this point, God is now saying, I am done dealing with you as a nation. They're going to be basically occupied until 1948, basically. I mean, they're going to be occupied from Babylon to Assyria to Greece to Rome to, uh, you know, the different empires that will come after that. And so what he's now saying is, I am not going to deal with you all as, your, as a generation to generation from what your family members did. I'm going to deal with you individually. 
So I hope that I have helped you a little bit understand where I'm coming from. A little bit of a sidetrack, but hey, it's a Bible study. It's a good Bible study, right? Now, if you can understand what I was saying before, that there's a nature from Adam in Romans chapter 5, and let's just look at it here again. Let's look at Romans chapter 5 and then get into the bigger point, okay? Romans chapter 5 talks about two atoms. And why are these two atoms so significant? Because they're both going to give us natures. One is going to give us the fallen sinful nature. One is going to give us the nature of God. Now, when we look here to Romans chapter 5, verse 15, it says, but the gift is not like the trespass. So what makes it different? When the trespass came, we were all sinners, not by choice. So I'm born a sinner, not by choice. Even though Adam is my representative, he is my governmental head speaking for humanity. In other words, if after Adam sinned, Jesus hit reset and then started with another man, hit reset, we would all equally fail. And so instead of Jesus going through all, you know, 8 billion of us, he said, let one of you represent humanity, let one male, one female, and then from there, We'll go on in humanity and I will redeem it, okay? So I was given the uh, condemnation of Adam without a choice. I didn't get to choose to be created and I didn't get to choose to be created in a fallen nature because of the fall of Adam. So it's not the gift is not like the trespass. The gift of now coming into the nature of Christ is a choice. Keep going. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace, notice that, and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. So notice those two words, grace and gift, grace and gift. The word grace there is charis, uh, which actually means gift. You can actually take the very word grace and mean it as gift. And then the word here that is gift is the word didiomai. Now, didiomai is another word for gift, but charis can also mean gift. So you can basically say it, how much more did God's gift and the gift that came by the gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So it's basically the gift of the gift of the gift. It's all the gift. The condemnation is not a gift. Because by definition, a gift you can receive or you can reject. That's why we're not Calvinists in our church. And that's why I don't teach Calvinism. Because if you call something a gift and it can't be uh, rejected, it's not a gift anymore. It's like uh, uh, the, the people were not going to um, Africa during that time and giving them the gift of slavery. You can't use that word in that context because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't reject it and push it back. But that's why the gift is different than the trespass because by definition, it's a gift. It's grace and grace can be resisted. So the Bible says that it's not, the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass was given upon us because of the curse of Adam. The gift is now given by the grace of God as a choice to receive or not. So look at verse 16. It says, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment, excuse me, the judgment followed one sin, brought condemnation, 
But the gift, hallelujah, come on somebody, but the gift followed many trespasses, trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive, listen to the word there, receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the man, the one man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, does everybody get that? Let me just pause here and make sure we're tracking. Let's say, uh, uh, let's read what Jim Barber is saying. He says, the Bible is full of the doctrine of hereditary. Whatever view we may take of the fall, it holds as a declaration of the unbroken sequence and cause and effect between the latest generations and the earliest. I believe that. Okay, so now, what are we going to do with this? If we believe we all became sinners in Adam, who are we now in Christ? We're saints. We are godly. Listen to the word godly. God-like. We are God-like. Not God. I said that from the beginning. Not teaching a false doctrine of us becoming little gods. I am simply saying if we were truly in the image of fallen man, and now we are in Christ. Aren't we in the image of the exalted Son of God? The holy and pure and righteous and perfect Jesus Christ who we all love and adore? Isn't that the good news that we go from sinner to saint, not by our own righteousness, but by the imputed, by the given righteousness of God when we receive it? Look at it again. It says it clearly here. It says we receive this righteousness when we receive the abundant provision of God's grace. Okay, I hope that you're being encouraged by this. So now let's go to what is one of my most favorite scriptures, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I don't see how anybody can argue with this because the question from the very beginning is, is Jesus just a one-off? Are we supposed to look at Jesus as some Superman who came down to be with us and show us a bunch of impossible things that we could never do and then now do our best to live up to it? And maybe one day when we're some sweet old grandpa or grandma, we'll get about 80% close to it, 85%, but we'll never be able to really be like Jesus. Is that the story of salvation? The is the story of salvation... You are God's continual uh, remodel project that he's continually renovating and chipping away at you. Or is salvation something so much more greater than that, so much more scandalous than that, that actually at the moment of salvation, we become like Jesus. We share in his divine nature not becoming one with him as a God, but becoming one with him as we were always meant to be as his creation, sharing and partaking with the divine nature. As I like to say, dancing with the divine, being intermingled with the presence of God so that it penetrates every part of our inner substance that we share in his likeness 
transforming and being transformed from glory to glory into the infinite and incomprehensible image of the glorious Son of God in whose image we were made. Oh, my friends, my brothers and sisters listening today, salvation is that amazing. The new creation of God is not made again in the damnable nature of Adam. That was given because of the fall, because of mankind's rejection of God. But now being born again is the experience to be enlightened and to be infused with the glory of God. Literally all of these words we should embrace, they're in our scripture to be enlightened, to be interpenetrated, or rather to be infused, to be transformed. All of these kind of words belong to the Christian, not to the new age weirdy and tight pants, but to us as Bible believers. This is the glorious gospel that I am in him and he is in me. Just mark down in your Bible study one time as you read through the book of Ephesians. Only takes about 20, 30 minutes, six chapters. And underline every time you see in him, in Christ, in God. This is the fullness of the gospel. Let me show you this beautiful scripture here as we continue on. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, and let's not get lost into that discussion right now. I believe God foreknew the future, but he didn't have to detail it and determine it to be so. He could foreknow and predestine what he allowed free creatures to do. Let's just say it like that. So God foreknows, and then based on his foreknowledge, he predestines, comes up with a plan. Now, what is the plan? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now notice this great language. This is not blasphemy. This is the glorious gospel. So that he, talking about Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What an amazing promise that Jesus wouldn't be a one-off, he would be the first of many. I know that people have gotten lost in these conversations and have gone into heresy, but might we just sit on this revelation for a moment? Jesus was not meant to be a one-off, he was meant to be the firstborn of many. What else does firstborn mean? We obviously as Trinitarians don't believe as Jehovah Witnesses do that the term firstborn means he's first of God's creation, that Jesus was created as the son, so he's less than Yahweh or Jehovah God. Of course we don't believe that. John 1, 1 contradicts that. That as long as the father has been God, the son has been God, as well as the Holy Spirit and the blessed trinity right so what is he the firstborn of he is the firstborn of the new human race the god kind of race where we used to be like the adam fallen kind of race now we who are born again are brothers and sisters with christ in a new race a new kind of human the kind of human we were created to be in the Garden of Eden made perfect in the image of God. And Colossians talks about this, 
that when he was raised from the dead, that he became the firstborn. That's when it was completed. And so now as long as God the Son shares in that humanity, we can now share in his divinity. If he ever takes off his humanity, we lose the opportunity to share in his divinity. He took on humanity that we might share in divinity. You say, Pastor, that is crazy. Where does that come from? Look at what the Bible says in 1 Peter. It says through these, first, uh, 2 Peter chapter uh, 1 verse 4 says through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. How do we escape our flesh? How do we escape satanic influence? How do we escape the world and its evil? Through being born again and participating in the divine nature of Christ. So can we be sinless after being born again? Absolutely. There is no sin. You are uh, enslaved to sin again. You can live free from all evil desires. That's the promise of the gospel. Why? Because you share in Christ's sinless divine nature. That is now who you are. It is natural for you to avoid sin as a Christian, as it once used to be natural for you to live in sin as a non-Christian. And so I like to say it as this. As much as I was sinful in my nature, in Adam, and in my own sin, I am now as in the divine nature and as righteous as Christ is in Christ. So what I was in Adam, to that extent, I am now in Christ. How much of a sinner were you in Adam? A hundred percent. How much of you is righteous now in Christ? A hundred percent. So some might say, well, pastor, I'm not sinless. Well, start with sinning less. <laughs> start with sinning less and you'll start to see that sinlessness is actually not the uh, uh, achievement of the head of the class, but it's actually the norm for the Bible. Job and Enoch and the disciples saw living without sin as normal because it was now natural. They shared in the nature of Christ. And John says, if you do sin, there's a propitiation for you. We're not to be under condemnation, but it's a big if, if we sin. Because he wrote, before that I write you these things, 1 John chapter 2, that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we do have an advocate. Now notice here, uh, he's a propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the world. Look at Colossians 3.10. It says, put on the new self. Now, are you a part Jekyll and uh, Dr. Jekyll and part Mr. Hyde? Are you a part man and part animal like a centaur? That's just my animal coming out. You know, no, you are in Christ a new self. As what's already been said by Christian Hillbilly, uh, Jim Barber here, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says anyone that's in Christ, notice the position is in Christ, they are a new creation. They are infused with the image of God in them and the old has gone and the new has come. And this is the same thing Paul is talking about in Colossians, that we put on the new self and it's continually being renewed. And being renewed doesn't mean to go from old to new, like, like to go from sinner to saint, to saint to sinner, and then from sinner to saint. No, no, no. Renewed means to continually be made new. 
It doesn't mean to be old and new, then old and new, then old. No, 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 no. Think of being renewed as being upgraded. If Paul was alive today, the language would be upgraded. You are being upgraded in your knowledge, in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. See, understand this. When you start off being born again, you can grow, but as you're growing, you're not changing your actual nature. It's not that as I spiritually grow, I become more like Christ in the sense that my nature changes from sinner to saint, sinner to saint, sinner to saint, or that I'm continually in God's water plant being purified, 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 and one day I'll be drinkable unto the Father. No, the default position of the believer is new. I mean, it just called it new. I mean, if I said, here's purified water, do you say, let's run it through the plant a hundred more times? No, it's purified. If I say, here's a new car, do you bring it then to get an oil change and get the mechanic to work on it? I mean, literally, I don't get why we miss the actual words of the scripture. Like the same place where it says in Ephesians, where his masterpiece, everybody wants to make that out to be like God's whittling on you every day. It literally just said, you are his masterpiece. The Picasso, oh, it's done. You look marvelous. You're done. Now, what does grow? What does move? In our nature, we grow in our knowledge, hallelujah, of who we are. That continues to grow. And as that grows, we express and show more of the glory of God. The more we know, the more we show, the more we grow. But we're not changing on the inside from sinner to saint, then from saint to sinner, then from sinner to saint again. Come on now. Because here's what the renewal is. It's an upgrade. So Christianity, you start at 1.0. 1.0 is perfect. 1.0 is a child of God. And as you mature, you go to upgrade 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. But as my Apple phone is upgrading, it is still an Apple phone by its nature. As I'm upgrading and going from glory to glory, uh, going into the depths of the limitless glory of our eternal God, I am the saint that's going from sainthood to sainthood to a next level of sainthood, etc. And the way I put it is like this. When my child is born, my child is born perfectly in my DNA and in my image. Then they grow and mature and express that image in a whole bunch of unique ways. That's the same way about being born again. When you're born again, the image, the DNA, the perfect nature, the new self, the new you, the divine nature, all of that's imparted, infused intermingled into who you are and then you grow but it's not like I look at my son one day when he's 20 years old and he's my same height and he can run faster and do all this that I now say now you're in my image no you were in my image from conception according to science DNA boom you were there already but the growth the growth that happens is not according to my ontology it's according to my knowledge it's according to how I experience God. I hope you understand that because here would be my question to anybody that thinks that growing in the knowledge of God and expressing new things in God means your nature is actually changing more to be like God. Then what you're saying is even after you die and you're going through this glory to glory to process, you're still part center in the kingdom to come. You see, there's nothing that's going to rid you of sin after you die more than what Christ has rid you of sin now. Sin has been ridden from you now. There's no, there's no savior, a second rebirth at death. It's not like you're born again now and then born again again at death. Death is not your savior. The process of death is not your savior. The only thing that happens, the, the transformation that happens at death is of your physical body. 
You're no longer in an earth shell that has been cursed because of sin. But remember, you're no more your body than you are your stomach. Are you your stomach? If you're not a part of your body, you're not the sum parts of your body. You are a spiritual soul living in your body. You'll be judged according to what you've done here in your body, but you are to count your body, your flesh, as crucified and live for God and experience that continual upgrading of his presence. Because remember, God is eternal. We can never reach the fullness of the knowledge of him. We can never express all that he is in our lives or in our eternal lives. Even if God was just 10,000 years ahead of us, he would ne- we would never be able to catch up to him in eternity. He would always be that much more ahead of us. But my friends, he's not only 10,000 years ahead of us in knowledge, he's infinitely ahead of us in the future in knowledge. And not only is he that way in the, in the, in the, in the future, he's infinitely uh, uh, um, uh, ahead of us going into the past and understanding his past. So going in both directions is infinite. And so we will have all of eternity to continue to to be renewed and to grow in our knowledge of him. That is truly what it means to be a Christian, is why God created us, to know him, to love him, to be uh, infatuated with him. And let me just show one more scripture. And um, let me just share this before we go on. Oh, I think I've shared all of these. Yeah, I think I did. Let me just end with 1 John then, which is a good one, which we have shared here before. 1 John 4, 17 says, this is how love is made complete. How is love made complete among us right now so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment? This is not so like when I die, I'm okay with judgment. No, I'm supposed to be complete in love now. That's why John Wesley talked about perfect love is what perfects the heart. And we can have perfect love. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you can't be saved without perfect love. So all these people who are saying like, well, you know, I don't really love God with all my heart. You know, that's that's impossible. Who really loves him with all their soul and mind and strength? My friend, that's, that's the... That's the first base of Christianity. That is the starting place of Christianity. If you don't love God today with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, you are not born of God. You are not born of God. You are something else, but you are not born of God because the the default position for a believer is a new heart full of love to love him as he's loved us. Now, when we don't do that, we sin. And And can we sin? Yes, even Wesley taught that a person could sin in a state of perfection. It wouldn't be normal for them to sin, but they could. And so I'm not trying to say like we should deny it when we sin, blame it on our body, etc. because we have this theology that I can never sin again. I'm just saying sinlessness should be the default. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves should be the default. And I don't believe that sin and lack of love for God is some ambiguous thing. I actually believe the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And when we don't do those things, he's quick to convict us so we can be restored to a default position of total love, total commitment to him. That's why John says, this is how love is made complete or perfect among us. Matter of fact, let me just put that right there. First, John 4, 17. Let me put that bad boy right here in the King James, which I know a lot of y'all like. And I love the King James. I used to be King James only. Uh, Now look at what it says. Love has been perfected, perfected, past tense, among us in this. How has God's love been perfected in us? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. 
could it be more clear that Jesus was never meant to be just a one-off, that Jesus was meant to be the firstborn among many brothers, that Jesus Christ died to get back for us what we lost from the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, that we were meant to live with him and to be like him, surrounded by his glory and his love. And isn't that the gospel message? Go and sin no more. What a privilege. Uh, you know, be born again. What a privilege. Why would anyone hear these gospel um, messages and be offended by them? Only those who are sinful in their heart and want to continue in sin. And as a matter of fact, let me just show that. Jesus said that. Jesus said, if you don't like the message of entire sanctification, in other words, if you don't like the message of Christian perfection or living without sin, then it's really because you love your sin. And that's where you want to stay. Let's read this famous passage together. We'll end with this. I see some amens coming. I know I got a little preachy. And it's also a podcast. You guys can always check it out online, you know, and uh, at your own time and like on iTunes, listen to it at, at double the speed. That's what I actually will do is I always go back over my, my messages and just, you know, try to get better at what I'm doing here. Take out the uhs and the, the longer pauses and stay flowing and read the Bible slower so I don't have to read it twice and confuse myself, you know. Let, let's look at this though in closing. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only or his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the, that the world might be saved through him. Now watch this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Look at what Jesus said, verse 20. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So I really believe Jesus is saying to us, like, if you don't want to stop sinning, if you don't want to share in my divine nature, you are going to run from the light. But if when you hear the gospel preaching as good news, as a transformation of life and inner being and as of character and outer thoughts and expressions of behavior, if you hear that and you want that, you will receive the light and you will be transformed by the light. I mean, just think about what Jesus called his disciples. You are the light of the world. I mean, sometimes people hear us as holiness preachers and they think we're blaspheming when we're saying we share in the divine nature of Christ. Yet that's a Bible verse pretty much said exactly like that. They think we're blaspheming when we're saying that as Jesus is, we are. That's word for word what the Bible says. They think that somehow we're putting down the unique status of Jesus as the eternal uh, son of God uh, made perfect in the flesh and died for our sins and rose again from the dead. When we say he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, once again, that's scripture. 
And then they think that we're highfalutin when we say that we are to be sinless and pure and holy. When that's commanded like over, I think, like 20 times in the scripture. Be holy for I am holy. Be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. Put on the new self. Take off the old. I mean, how many other ways could he possibly have said it? And yet it's still misunderstood. Could it be that it's misunderstood on purpose? Could it be that people are purposefully misunderstanding the message so they have their excuse for sin, so that they have their excuse for living like a carnal Christian, what the Bible says is an oxymoron, it should not even exist, a Christian living like the devil. Sadly, there are some that you can't tell the difference. Are they weed? Are they wheat? But that shouldn't be the normal Christian life. We who are holiness preachers are not the supermen. We're not the super apostles. Some people mock us and say, here they are, the super apostles. They believe they're perfect in Christ. The work of sanctification is done. Here they are, applaud for the super saints. No, we are actually just taking the Bible at its word. I am a saint. What else should I call myself when Paul calls me a saint in almost every single one of his letters? Why would I go against that and go, excuse me, Paul, <laughs> don't you know we are still sinners? We are being worked on daily to become more righteous. Don't tell, call me a saint. I might become more puffed up. Come on, somebody. It is, it is laughable how clear the Bible is that Jesus was never meant to be a one-off for humanity, but rather the restart of humanity. And yet we keep resisting the new humanity Christ is giving us, which is actually in the NIV, new humanity, by the way. The Bible is calling us to live and to be like Christ. Let's do that. Amen. Let's see if there's any comments or questions. I was closing it out there. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, Roger. Amen. Looks like you're uh, sticking with me. And I don't see any other questions here. I'll give you guys just a few moments. Always want to make this an enjoyable Bible study. I'm going to be preaching today, Lord willing, two chapters from the book of Romans and chapel. Those of you who enjoy that. And then by God's grace, if the weather holds up, we'll be out street preaching today. Okay, I know there's a little bit of a delay, but I still don't see any questions. So I hope you guys have a great Monday. Love you and God bless. Live for Jesus.